Let me invite you, if you have a copy of the Bible available to you, to turn with me once again to the book of Psalms. And I'd like to turn to the first psalm, Psalm number 1. Psalm 1. Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the ungodly, nor stands in the path of sinners, nor sits in the seat of the scornful. But his delight is in the law of the Lord, that in his law he meditates day and night. And he shall be like a tree planted by the rivers of water that brings forth its fruit in its season, whose leaf also shall not wither, and whatever he does shall prosper. The ungodly are not so, but are like the chaff which the wind drives away. Therefore the ungodly shall not stand in the judgment, nor sinners in the congregation of the righteous. For the Lord knows the way of the righteous, but the way of the ungodly shall perish. Let's bow together in prayer. Almighty and eternal and ever-blessed God, Glorious in holiness and fearful in praises. You are the God who does wonders. And we bow before you and we acknowledge who you are. And as we come to your holy word, as we have been singing earlier, we ask that you will grant unto us the help of your Holy Spirit, that we might understand what you are saying to us, and that we might have the willing heart and mind to put your word into practice in our lives that we might please you we ask these things in our saviour's name amen i'm sure that most if not all of you who are here this morning will agree with me that the tragic predicament of the day and of the age in which we are living is something that gives most thinking people a great deal of cause for concern. The question why sums up the bewilderment of the fear that people are feeling almost everywhere. Why is there a constant shadow and threat of war? Why is the world in such turmoil? Why are there continual tensions where men's hearts are failing them for fear? Why is there a continual cry of distress and despair from so many people and nations? And in the face of all of these things, why is the world of politics and government in so much confusion and confrontation and turmoil? Well, I want to address some of these questions to you this morning by turning to Psalm 1. I, I can't remember if I've ever s- preached through Psalm 1 before, but I felt constrained to turn to this psalm and to do so with you this morning. And I want to say to you that it is a very solemn message that I shall be bringing And so I crave your attention, and particularly as I introduce what we're going to look at. The book of Psalms is perhaps the one section of scripture that is most frequently visited by the Lord's people, perhaps the most worn part of your Bible. And nowhere in the Old Testament do you turn as frequently as you do to the book of Psalms. And its position in the canon of Scripture is not without significance. It's placed in between the history of the kings on the one hand and the stormy thunderings of the prophets on the other. And it begins with that statement, blessed is the man. So the message is one of true joy and peace in the midst of the gathering darkness of an age which had lost its God. 
surrounded on all sides by chaos and confusion and turmoil such as we are experiencing, there is this message of peace. And I suppose a suitable commentary on the whole book of Psalms would be Psalm 91. He that dwells in the secret place of the Most High shall abide under the shadow of the Almighty. When you go to other parts of Scripture, those other parts of Scripture represent God speaking to men and women. The book of Psalms gives you a man representing other men speaking his mind and his intentions and his desires to God. So that's why in the midst of all of our griefs and sorrows and doubts and fears and all of our hopes and our anxieties, the Christian instinctively turns to the book of Psalms. And the reason of that is quite simple. Because the Psalms are not simply the product or the outcome of the psalmist's study. These are the outcome of his various, various experiences in the crucible of life. Here is the record of a man who is dealing with the great issues of life, especially as he goes through various trials, tragedies, mysteries within his own experience. So the Psalms are showing us that the Christian, as we've been reading in Romans, is not delivered from these things in order to be more than conqueror. He is in these things, in the midst of these trials, in the midst of these difficulties of life, he is more than a conqueror. And so the psalmist often relates some of those difficulties in details. And then he tells us what happened to him personally as, and what he found as a result of those experiences. Now, those of you that are familiar with John Bunyan's Pilgrim's Progress, you may remember that when he was in the Valley of the Shadow, Pilgrim, he heard the voice of a man named Faithful ahead of him. And when he heard that voice, it cheered him, it comforted his heart. Why? Because he knew that there was someone else in that valley. And that is what the book of Psalms is doing. It's telling you and me that there is someone else in the valley. There is someone else in the battle. You are not alone in the things that you are going through. Others have known the things that you are knowing. Others have grieved as you grieve. Others have been tempted as you are tempted. Others have found the heavens as brass, as you can often find the heavens as brass. Now that's one of the main blessings of reading the book of Psalms. If you wanted another text for the whole of the Psalter, you couldn't find a better one than Psalm 66 and verse 16. Come and hear all you that fear God, and I will tell you what he has done for my soul. And that is what is happening as you go through this book. They're a reflection of what these men, these psalmists have found to be the Lord to be like in their lives. But let me just say this, that the book of Psalms is not just for Christians. It contains a message for those who are not Christians or even those who are not religious. Because people who are not Christians or religious are also struggling with everything that is going on around them. And they also are wanting peace and they're also wanting happiness within their own lives. So the Bible is good news or a gospel that shows where that true peace that they are looking for can be found. The book of Psalms is also for those people, and I imagine in this congregation, those people who are religious and they are regular church attenders, and yet you have never come into a personal knowledge of God as your Lord and as your Savior. And Christianity is all about having a personal relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ. And there is a great danger for some people that their religious activity and their Christian service 
becomes a substitute for that personal relationship and fellowship with the Lord Jesus Christ. And I want to stress this point to such people as clearly as I can. Because it is vital for you to know where you stand personally in relation to God. Do you remember that our Lord Jesus Christ, when he was speaking about the day of judgment in the Sermon on the Mount, he said there will be some people in that category. And you remember that he said, many will say to me in that day, Lord, Lord, have we not prophesied in your name, cast out demons in your name, done many wonders in your name? And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. So I trust you'll understand just how crucial a thing it is for you to know where you stand personally in relation to God. And it's within that overall context that I want us to look at this first psalm. It stands like a guardian or a sentinel ushering us into the rest of the book of Psalms. Psalm 1 is the text of the sermon of the whole book of Psalms. And in this first psalm there are primary truths which you will find in all of the other psalms. And those primary truths can be summarized in this way. That the person who is to be congratulated and the person who is to be envied and the person who is truly, ultimately happy is the person who loves God's law and lives by it. And that is why the psalm begins, Blessed is the man. Now, ladies, when the Bible uses that term and when I use that term, it's a generic term. It means both men and women. In other words, the key factor and the central element for knowing true happiness in your life belongs to the person whose life has its roots in the Word of God, its eyes upon the glory of God, and its life conformed to the will of God. And that is the basic assertion of this psalm. Now there are many people who would dispute that. And you may be here this morning, and that is your response. Well, all that I would ask is that you would be willing to consider what I'm trying to bring before you. And most of you who are Christians, you will know that there is a beautiful balance in scripture that draws a line from the highest points of doctrine and theology to the lowest level of Christian duty. And the glory of a true biblical theology is that it is designed by God to produce godliness in the character of every person in ordinary practical areas of their lives. It's not so much what you do in the Christian life. It's what you are. God is determined to build character. But the product of your struggles and the fruit of your conflicts will be an increasingly godly character. Now you may have noticed that the conclusion the psalmist comes to is seen by the way he repeatedly uses the word blessed or blessed. Sometimes it's translated happy. That word is used over 50 times in the book of Psalms. For example, in Psalm 2 and verse 12, blessed are all those who put their trust in him. Psalm 32, blessed is he whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. Blessed is the man to whom the Lord does not impute iniquity. Psalm 34, taste and see that the Lord is good. Blessed is the man who trusts in him, and so on. It's the very same word that was used by our Lord in the Sermon on the Mount, in the opening statements on the Sermon on the Mount, described as the Beatitudes, And that word is simply taken from the Latin beatus. Apparently in the Greek it is the word makarios, which means blessed or fortunate or happy. It's used in the sense of someone being privileged, the privileged recipient of the divine favor. They are blessed. 
Now here in this Psalm 1 and in other Psalms, it's almost used as an interjection. Oh, the blessedness. It carries the sense of somebody who is to be congratulated because their life is an enviable one. So the word happy seems to stress the feel-good factor. And that's not really what the psalmist is saying. It's not what the word says. It's not simply feeling good about yourself. Just been reading a biography of your President Trump, who, who was influenced in his early life by a man named Norman Vincent Peale. And Norman Vincent Peale's philosophy was that you need to have the power of positive thinking so that if you look at yourself in the mirror and the way you are first thing in the morning, you say to yourself, you're the most handsome man I've ever seen. It's the power of positive thinking. But that is not the gospel. And that's not what the psalm is saying. True happiness and blessedness is that condition of heart and mind which God originally intended for you to possess. That blessedness is the state that Adam was in, in the garden, prior to the fall. He was created in order that he might enjoy true blessedness and real happiness, which only comes from being in a right relationship with God. And Adam's happiness was found in responding to God, in trusting God, in obeying God. Now that happiness was taken from Adam when he was seduced in trying to find it in some other way than the way that God had told him. And so he was beguiled into seeking happiness in some other way than that which had been given to him by God. Consequently, he lost the blessedness and he lost the happiness which he had known in the paradise of God. And he and all of his posterity which is you and me, have been shut out and removed from that which gives the most true and abiding blessedness. So much so that mankind, as they are born into this world, we're all strangers to that blessedness. It has been lost to us and we have been lost to it. However, the yearning and the longing for that state of happiness and that blessedness is still there. It remains in each and every one of us. There is a void within the human heart and the devil would see to it that you try to satisfy that longing and yearning, that innate desire which you have, he would want you to satisfy it in other ways other than the only way in which that satisfaction can be found. So the devil will hold before us, as he did with Adam, all the desires of the eyes and of the mind and of the lusts of the flesh. He will tell us that true happiness can only be found in materialism. If you have more and more material possessions, or if you have a successful career, or if you have a successful profession, or if you reach the top in some sport or pastime, and millions of people are seeking real blessedness and happiness in these other things, and they are chasing a delusion. Here is the Lord who made us, showing us through the words of the psalmist where that original true happiness can be found. It is the outcome or the product or the fruit of living in a particular way. And that is the way that God himself has prescribed. And to live in any other way is described as being ungodly. And the ungodly are also described as the wicked. And they are also described as the unrighteous. So this initial psalm is demonstrating those ultimate realities. So in the opening verses, within a very short compass, we're presented with some stark contrasts or alternatives. It's showing us that there are two types of men. There are two ways or patterns of life in which to walk. And there are two paths in which we must follow. And there are two destinies toward which we are moving. And what the psalmist is doing is simply anticipating 
the very same teaching that the Lord Jesus proclaimed when he applied that general principle. He classified people. At the end of the Sermon on the Mount, he spoke about two kinds of people. There are two ways of life. There are two final destinies. There is a narrow gate which leads to a narrow way. It ends in life. There is a broad gate which leads to an easy way and an easy life which ends in destruction. So the psalmist is saying what our Lord is going to say. The truly happy person is the one who is found on the right road which leads to life. Now, as with so many of the teachings of Scripture, what God is doing to each one of us is showing us a mirror. And he's saying, I want you to look into this mirror. How do you see yourself? And when you look into that mirror, ask yourself the question, is that me? On which road am I travelling? With which company am I identified, with the godly or with the ungodly? Now that's the crux of the matter that the psalmist is setting before us. Now you may have noticed as we read through it that there are three sections in the psalm. They're seen in verses 1 and 2, verses 3 and 4, and verses 5 and 6. So let me try and draw some lessons by looking at them under three headings. First of all, there is a contrast that is made, and that is seen in verse, verse 1 and 2. Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the ungodly, nor stands in the path of sinners, nor sits in the seat of the scornful, but his delight is in the law of the Lord, and in his law he meditates day and night. Then in verses 3 and 4, there is a comparison that is given. He shall be like a tree planted by the rivers of water that brings forth its fruit in its season. His leaf also shall not wither. Whatever he does shall prosper. The ungodly are not so. They are like the chaff which the wind drives away. So there is the comparison. The godly man is like a tree. The ungodly man is like chaff. And then in verses 5 and 6, there is a conclusion that is reached. Therefore, the ungodly shall not stand in the judgment, nor sinners in the congregation of the righteous. For the Lord knows the way of the righteous, but the way of the ungodly shall perish. That's the ultimate end, the final judgment of both the godly and the ungodly man. So these are the three ways that we're going to look at the psalm. First of all, a contrast that is made in verses 1 and 2. And I'll probably be focusing upon this most. So don't panic if you find that I'm using a lot of time on this first point. Now keep in mind that we need to be questioning all the time as we go through. Is this me? Is this me? So here in verse 1, you have the blessed man being described in three different ways. And you will notice that they are all negative. And the negatives are describing the contrast between the blessed man and the ungodly man. Now, that's something that you find not only in this psalm, but in a number of other psalms. So in describing the truly blessed man, the psalmist is saying that he is not like the godless. Notice how he says it. Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the ungodly, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of the scornful. Our Lord did the very same thing in his teaching when he was speaking about the religious leaders of his day. And he mentions the scribes and the Pharisees and he described how they lived and how they displayed their religion. And he turned to his disciples and he said, you shall not be like them. So the Lord is doing the same thing as the psalmist. He's saying that the distinguishing marks of the true man or woman of God is that they will not be like the ungodly. And it is striking to see such a negative emphasis in these verses. He does not walk in the counsel of the wicked. He does not stand in the way of sinners. He does not sit in the seat of mockers or scorners. Now, obviously, for Christians, 
If we are concerned to spread the gospel, there is a need for us to press the positive side of Christianity. When we are speaking about the gospel to non-Christians, we want to present the gospel in as bright a light as possible. But there is a danger that we need to avoid. We can stress the positives and we can play down or even exclude the negatives. And we want to present the gospel and the Christian life positively, but we can be in danger of removing the challenge of the gospel so that we present the gospel as a kind of tranquilizer for people's problems. And there are so-called evangelists who present the gospel, this is the end of all your problems, it's the end of all your difficulties, it's the beginning of a wonderful prosperity in your life, materialism and so on. That is not the gospel. There are negatives in the Christian life. Jesus said a man or a woman must be willing to deny themselves and take up the cross if they are going to follow him. Do you remember there were some erstwhile followers in Luke 9 where each tried to place certain conditions on their following him and he stressed the cost of becoming a follower. And our Lord always stressed the cost of discipleship. That is what he did with the rich young, rich young ruler. And the rich young ruler couldn't take it. Jesus didn't come call him back and negotiate and make things easier. He challenges people to think about what they are going to commit themselves to. And negative aspects and attitudes don't necessarily repel people. They can excite interest or curiosity. It can summon people to think about the Christian life. So there will be something distinctive about a godly person's life, and that distinction will be something negative. Romans 12 and verse 2. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Ephesians 2.22. Put off the old man and put on the new man. So we can't dismiss this negative emphasis. That's what the psalmist is saying. Blessed is the man who is distinct from those who walk in the counsel of the wicked and stand in the way of sinners and sit in the seat of the scoffer. So you begin to see how important it is to understand what the godly person is like. And the Bible says the godly person is not like the ungodly. So the great question that needs to be asked is, wherein do I differ from the ungodly? Are you different in your life and living from the person who has removed God from their thinking? And here this psalm is presenting that vital issue before us. And it's incumbent upon each and every one of us to face up to that question. And it's not enough to say, well, I differ from the people in my place of work or from my neighbours and, and so on. I differ from them in what I profess. I profess to be a Christian. Well, I want to say to you, you can be a professing Christian and a practising atheist. You can come here on a Sunday and profess to be a Christian, but you can be a practising atheist throughout the week. Do you remember what our Lord said? There will be many in that day who will come before me and say, Lord, Lord, I never knew you. And the vital thing that Jesus is speaking about and the psalmist is speaking about is the difference in the character and the behavior and the standards and the thinking of a whole person's life. And that's a profound question to face because it has immense consequences. Do you recall the picture that our Lord gave concerning the wise and the foolish bridesmaids who are waiting for the bridegroom? 
Five, we are told, went into the wedding and five were shut out and couldn't get into the wedding at the end of the day. Yet to all outward appearances, those bridesmaids all looked the same. They all dressed the same. They were engaged in doing the same thing. They were all preparing for the bridegroom to come. They're all described as bridesmaids. Nobody would ever have thought that by their outward appearance that there was any difference from those five from those five. But there was. And the thing that made the difference was not something that was outward, it was something that was inward. And that's what makes that parable so deeply worrying. Because there is the possibility in religious life that you can deceive yourself into thinking that you are right with God and it is the utmost self-deception. And the great question is, What distinguishes you from the ungodly? And there are many people who make professions of faith, but their lives are no different from the lives of their unbelieving neighbours or their colleagues at work. It's easier to talk about faith than to have faith. Again, if you listen to Bunyan's Bunyan's Pilgrim Poet Progress, he talks about Mr. Talkative. Listen to what he says. He talks about prayer and repentance of faith, of new birth, but he knows only to talk of them. I've been in his house and it is as empty of of religion as the white of an egg is of savour. If you observe people closely, you will see their characteristics. And the people who have, have no relationship with God seem to have no sense of their own sin. They never show any repentance for their sin. They never pray for forgiveness from their sin. They can make light of sin. They can dabble in sin. They've got no practical experimental faith which rests on Christ alone in every situation and circumstance. Oh, they can talk about the church. They can talk about the blessings They can talk about their faith, but they very rarely talk about their saviour. They don't have the evidences of practical holiness. And they find their happiness in the lusts of the flesh, and in the pride of life, and in the pleasures of the world. All the appearances without the reality. Now, apart from the fact that you attend church on a Sunday, are you any different from the people who don't? What distinguishes you from the ungodly? Listen to what the psalmist is saying. Notice there are three steps or stages in departing from God, and they're seen in relation to the world of the ungodly, and they reveal the hardening power of sin. Notice there is a progression or maybe a regression in the three phases that he mentions, probably three stages in departing from God. So what are they? Well, they're seen in our attitude to the ungodly world of men and women around us. First of all, by accepting its advice, and then in aligning with its ways, and then adopting its attitudes. First of all, accepting its advice, walking not in the counsel of the ungodly. In other words, simply listening to what the world thinks and what the world says and what the world pronounces. That's the first stage in aligning yourself with the ungodly and their godless life. You are surrounded by the ungodly in your place of work, in your neighbourhood, even in your home. People who are constantly telling you this and that and the other and giving you advice. You'll find it in your social life, in the political world. Sadly, sometimes in church life, ungodly people who have all kinds of views and opinions on every conceivable matter, and very often in the realm of social and moral matters, and they make firm assumptions on many, many things, and those assumptions are made as if there was no possibility of any kind of alternative viewpoint. And we hear these things on a daily basis. Views that are godless, immoral, atheistic, and unchristian. 
And the world is not short of opinionated pundits who preach these things. And they can be very loud and very vocal and passionate in doing so. It's happening constantly in the media, which dominates the minds of millions of people throughout the world. And you can have all of your thought forms molded and affected by an ungodly world. So the first stage in departure from God is not simply listening to these things, but giving way to these things. Being prepared to accept these things. The point where you find yourself consenting to these views and to these opinions of the ungodly. Views that would dethrone God. And there comes a point where men say no to God. And in doing that, they're saying yes to the devil. And then the chain of consequences is inevitable. Now that is not a conscious or a deliberate or a calculated process because the ungodly person is beguiled by the God of this world. The God of this world has blinded their mind. And so that happens because he has now excluded God from his thinking. But then you will notice that the psalmist says that from the stage of accepting and consenting to the views of the ungodly, it progresses to the next stage. Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the ungodly, nor stands in the path of sinners. That means not just accepting the views of an ungodly world, but aligning yourself to its way of life. Practical atheism leads to an insensitivity to the things of God. And so you no longer see sin as sin. And you no longer see evil as evil. If you have ever visited a slum, the first thing that you will notice is the smell. But those people who live there are not conscious of that smell. They have become used to it. And it doesn't affect them any longer. And that is what the psalmist is saying here when he speaks of standing in the way of sinners, becoming insensitive to the ways of the world, doing the things of the world, taking pleasure in the things of the world, very often godless and immoral things. And we are living in a day and a generation where moral values which have stood for centuries have been almost totally discarded and rejected. And those of us who are much older in our generation will perhaps be more conscious of what I'm saying. Things that would never have been allowed in the media that shocked and concerned people a generation ago, even non-religious people, are now the accepted thing and they're the legalized standards of the day in which we live. And when that happens, society begins to call good evil and evil good. And society trivializes the things that are serious and takes serious the things that are trivial. And before we know it, we end up not simply accepting the world's views and aligning in its ways, but adopting its attitudes, nor sits in the seat of the scornful. That is serious and it's dangerous. How many people have come to do this in their lives? Scoffing or being scornful, mocking God, adopting an attitude which regards God of no importance. And that is the majority of view of the people in this world. God is of no importance. Whereas once a man may have hesitantly rejected the things of God, but now he's become ungodly, and so he makes light of the things of God. He even adopts a scornful attitude to the things of God. He takes God's name in vain. He pours contempt on the word of God. He ridicules God's people. He makes light of the things that are sacred. He shows disdain for the things that are holy in the sight of a holy God. Foul language doesn't bother him. Begins to use it himself. The ungodly man scoffs at God and at the things of God. He doesn't regard them. They're of little or no importance. And I think that that phrase, sitting in the seat of the scornful, 
is very significant. In the psalmist's day and in our Lord's day, that was the posture taken by those people in the synagogue. They would sit in order to teach the people. And religious men in our Lord's day were teaching false doctrines. And the great danger for religious leaders is that they can depart from the fundamental and ultimate authority of the word of God in all things concerning life and faith. And so there is no longer any ultimate authority in their lives. As it was in the days of Judges, each man does that which is right in his own eyes. And you see that throughout the history of the church, where men began to regard the writings of men higher than the word of God as their authority. And so they listened to the unorthodox and the heretical teachings of liberal scholars. They abandoned Holy Scripture. And it's not something that is strange to us in our days. Some of us can remember men who used to be upholders of conservative evangelical convictions concerning the Scriptures. And they don't do that any longer. And it's amazing how they can denigrate and attack with contempt that the views that they once held, and they no longer hold to them. And all that we can say is that these people try to patronize us. Well, you evangelicals, I used to be like that, but I got over it. And they need to listen to what our Lord said. Whoever teaches one of these little ones to sin, it would be better for him if a millstone were hung around his neck and he were drowned in the depths of the sea. So there are the three stages Accepting the world's views, aligning with its ways, adopting its attitudes. Look in the mirror. Where do you stand? Where are you this morning with regard to the world? What are the things that you take most seriously in life? Because the godly person is the one whose whole life is characterized by taking God and the things of God and the word of God and the law of God and the worship of God and the glory and the honor of God, taking them seriously. Do you take those things seriously? You may say, well, I am taking these things seriously. Well, God, through his word, is saying to you this morning, where is the evidence of that? Because the person who takes the word of God seriously will manifest that in their character and behavior. Can you imagine a student coming to the end of his first year at college or university? You know that year when many students don't get down to things as they should? And so he's been negligent in his studies, having coffee sessions every day, musical evenings, simply enjoying being away from home. And the professor comes to him and speaks sternly to him, telling him that he didn't come to college to drink coffee. He came to study. And he warns him of the consequences if he continues like that. But the student says, well, I am taking things seriously. The professor will probably say to him, where is the evidence of that? If you are a professing believer, where is the evidence that you are taking God seriously and the things of God seriously and the worship of God seriously? Can you simply take the worship of God, take it or leave it? If I'm free, if I'm able, I'll be there. The godly person is one who is concerned for the honor of God and for the glory of Christ. And their whole life is regulated and ordered by that. He walks not in the counsel of the ungodly, nor stands in the path of sinners, nor sits in the seat of the scoffer. Now all of that is on the negative side. The godly man does not take his advice from a godless world. He does not align himself with its ways. He does not adopt their attitudes. He does not accept their standards or their ideas. They don't form his thinking. 
on the contrary, his or her life is distinguished because it has its roots in the law of God, it has its eyes upon the glory of God, and its life is conformed to the will of God. So having mentioned the negatives, the psalmist then goes on with these positives. The happy or the blessed man is distinguished by his positive relation, relationship to the law of God. Look at verse 2. His delight is in the law of the Lord, and in his law he meditates day and night. Now that may sound familiar to some of you. Listen to these words from Joshua chapter 1. Only be strong and very courageous, so that you may observe to do according to all the law which Moses, my servant, commanded you. Do not turn from it to the right hand or to the left, that you may prosper wherever you go. This book of the law shall not depart out of your mouth, but you shall meditate in it day and night, that you may observe to do according to all that is written in it. For then you will make your way prosperous, and then you shall have good success." That's the first reference to a man having the book of the law as his guide. And it's clear that it is given in order to promote obedience. And the whole book of Joshua is a testimony to the fact that the Lord promised certain things and the law was given to confirm that promise. And it was his delight in the law of God that explains the triumphant move forward under Joshua by the people of God. Now that's the contrast that the psalmist is making. That word law means either the moral law in the Ten Commandments or all of Scripture. That is the thing that marks the godly person. And Paul, writing as a converted man, in Romans 7.22, he says, I delight in the law of God according to the inward man. Now if you're not converted, you can't say that. And Paul tells you why you can't say that in Romans chapter 8 and verse 7. Because the carnal mind is enmity against God. It is not subject to the law of God. Indeed, it cannot be. So the truly converted person loves the word of God and that's a sign that they've been converted. That's an evidence of regeneration. It's seen in the person who delights in the word of God. Not because evangelicals say that you've got to read your Bible and read a chapter every morning in order to ease your conscience. It is the law of God that is your delight. You want to know more about God. You want to understand his word more fully. That's the contrast between the godly and the ungodly. The godly man meditates in the law of God. In other words, he ponders it deeply. It's a similar word to the word consider in Hebrews 12. Consider him who endured such contradiction. Someone has said that the word is akin to the description of a cow chewing the cud. You know when a cow chews the cud? Well, if you live in a farming area as I do, you would see that very often. The cow chews over the grass over and over and over again. That is the kind of thing that the godly person does with the word of God. Interestingly, it's the same word that is rendered in Psalm 2 and verse 1 as the word plot. It's the same word. Why do the heathen rage and the people plot a vain thing? It's the kind of word that you would use if a criminal is plotting an armed robbery. What do you do? Well, I hope you don't do it. But if a criminal is going to plot to rob a bank, he ponders it. When do we do it? How do we do it? Which way do we go about it? It's a word plot. It's pondering. If you go to an art gallery, you will never discover the wonder of an old masterpiece just giving it a casual glance and moving on. You have to linger, you have to wait, you have to watch, you have to ponder. You have to detect the fullness and the depth of that particular portrait in order to see the wonder of it all. The old farmers in the English Lake District used to smile at a man named Wordsworth. They saw him for hours sitting on a rock. Somebody thought he was lazy, others thought he was crazy. But he was carefully pondering and cautiously studying the beauties of nature. And millions of us poetry lovers have been his debtors. 
pondering, examining, thinking. That's what the godly person does when he meditates on the Word of God. And that meditation, meditation shapes his thinking. What shapes your thinking shapes your life. So what shapes your thinking? Is it all the pressures of a godless society around you? All the intellectual barrenness in this immoral climate, in the realm of politics and business and entertainment? What shapes your thinking? America's got talent? Does that shape your thinking? The people you live among and work among every day who dismiss God from their thoughts, does that shape your thinking? Or is the word of God shaping your thinking? Because that is what will shape and mould and determine your life. And the godly man will have the discernment to see the issues of the day clearly. And he's able to respond to them. Because the godly man or woman thinks biblically. And they bring biblical principles to apply to their life. So what is it that is shaping your thinking? Is it the world? Is it your friends? Is it a TV program? Is it sport? Or is it the principles discovered as a result of delighting and meditating in the words of God? Listen to this quote by Edward Payson. If a man finds no book like the Bible, no place like God's house, no day like the Lord's day, no society like that of God's people, no enjoyment like that of the worship of Jesus, no greater interest and concern than that of seeing his kingdom pro progress and prosper, then it is evident that he loves all other pleasures less than God. On the other hand, if he finds more satisfaction in worldly than in spiritual pleasures, if he prefers novels and plays to the Bible, if he feels happier with worldly friends or friends, finds greater enjoyment at a party, in a theatre or engaged in some recreation than he ever finds or has ever found at any time in Christ and the things of God, then it is as evident as anything can be that he is a lover of pleasure more than a lover of God. That is the contrast between the godly and the godless. Now very, very quickly, look at the comparison. Verse 3, the godly man is like to a, likened to a fruitful tree. The ungodly man is likened to chaff, which the wind blows away. Now we've been introduced to that in verse 2. The roots of the godly man go down into God's law. There those roots find refreshment and nourishment and that will produce fruit in due season. He is like a tree planted by the rivers of water. He brings forth fruit in his life, throughout his life. There is a freedom about him. There is a freshness about him. Even in drought, his leaf doesn't wither. In everything he does, he prospers because his roots are drawing from the word of God. And that fruit is seen in his life. That's the only way that you will have fruitfulness in your spiritual life. And there are times when you can see that in the lives of other people. Without putting it into words, there is something about them. There's a spiritual freshness. There's a fruitfulness that makes you long to be like that. Over the years, I have met numbers of people. And I've watched them. I've listened to them. I've seen how they've died. I've seen how they've been in times of tragedy. And you say, I long to be like that. But that doesn't happen overnight. Instant fruitfulness is not something that happens in the spiritual life. There is no shortcut to fruitfulness spiritually. It takes time for the roots that go down into the word of God and into the law of God and that gradually transforms your character. On the other hand, the godless man is like chaff. Empty, useless. The wind just blows it away. And its place knows it no more. Look in the mirror. Which one are you? Which one are you? Are you the blessed man, blessed woman, or the ungodly? 
And if you look around you, you will see people, even famous, prosperous people, successful people, and behind it all, they have an empty life. It's like chaff, and the wind blows it away. Contrast that is made, a comparison that is shown, and the conclusion that is reached. The ungodly shall not stand in the judgment, nor sinners in the congregation of the righteous. For the Lord knows the way of the righteous, but the way of the ungodly shall perish. Which way are you heading? As you are heading for the judgment. And you may think that the judgment in your life is a long way off. It could happen tomorrow. Where will you be on that day and in that moment? Will Christ say, depart from me, I I never knew you. Oh yes, you went to church. You may have taught in the Sunday school class. But you had no relationship with me. Or will he say, well done, good and faithful servant. Enter into the joy of your Lord. I went with my wife some years ago and we sailed across the English Channel channel from Belgium to England. It's a beautiful summer's day and our attention was drawn to some markers in the channel where we could actually see a vessel the very same as ours on the bottom of the channel. And it was on a very similar day a short time before when another ship had just left the Belgian harbour of Zeebrugge, there were a crew of 80 people together with 459 passengers, 81 cars, 3 buses and 47 trucks. Ships which were designed for rapid loading and unloading on this competitive cross-channel route. And there were no watertight compartments. And the ship left the harbour with her bow doors open and immediately the sea flooded the decks and within two minutes she was lying on her side in the shallow water and the lives of 193 passengers and crew were lost in the shallow water and the immediate cause of the sinking was found to be the negligence by one of the crew who was asleep in his cabin when he didn't hear the alarm going for the bow's doors to be closed. I have the solemn purpose, or commission if you like, of bringing this solemn word to you in God's name, that you heed the warning that God gives to you in his word, It is appointed unto man once to die. And after death, there will be a judgment. And you will stand before God in that judgment. And you will not be able to make the excuse that you did not know. You listen to it here every week. Put the mirror to your face. Deal honestly with yourself so that you are not engaged in self-deception. Are you like the godly or like the ungodly? Well, may God give you grace to face up to the challenge. Let's close with prayer. Let's all pray. Our gracious God and our loving Heavenly Father, how we thank you that you are a God of infinite love and kindness and you were under no obligation to send your son into the world to bring us this happiness to live the life that we could never live and to die the death that we deserve to die but oh how we thank you
for your long-suffering, for your patience, how you deal with us. And we do pray that both preacher and hearer alike will take your word and hold it like a mirror to our hearts and lives. And, oh God, help us to be honest before you. Deal with us as you see we need to be dealt with. We ask these things in our Saviour's lovely name. Amen.